You are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. You may be seated. All right. You can turn uh, to Acts chapter 5. Or you can turn to page 32 in your Bible, or in your, in your journal. I guess technically page 30. Page 30. We are in the middle of a, a sermon series called Witnesses through the, through the book of Acts. Uh, imperfect people beholding the perfect work of Jesus. And I was reminded this week... Uh, of even my, my own gloriously humbling uh, imperfections and how God continues to use people like me. I, I was totally set up for a, a really awesome ministry opportunity and uh, totally whiffed on it this week. Totally, totally whiffed on it. Uh, forgot all about it and uh, had someone show up at my door this week and uh, ready to hear the gospel, ready to, ready to have, have the word of God ministered to them, and I blew it. And I was, like, after that, I was, I was, I was thinking as I was studying, like, man, there had to have been at least one apostle or, or one disciple of Jesus who was, a, who was called by God to go heal somebody, and they just totally forgot that appointment. Like, that had to have existed. Uh, maybe not. Maybe I'm the only one who literally just blew an entire ministry opportunity. Um, but I was really encouraged to know that, man, the kingdom of God marches on, healing takes place, God still ministers, uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to be, uh, to be sustained by the, the power and ministry of, of Jesus. All right, but tonight is, uh, man, it's, it's a longer passage. I'm going to read it for us, so, so stick with me. We're going to read from uh, verse 17 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 42. Some of this will sound eerily familiar, uh, but this is a, a totally unique story, uh, so, so dial in here, but we're going to read from verse 17 all the way till the end. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to all the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. When the high priest and those who were with him, uh, who were with them, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, they found, uh, we found no one inside. 
When the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what would come to, what, what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men who, put, who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching people, teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they set them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you to not teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if, it is this, uh, for, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. When they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. All right, long passage. If you remember, uh, we are are standing kind of in a uh, a little crossroads with, with what is happening in the early church. Uh, if you remember uh, the beginning of chapter 5, uh, you had this great grace that was upon all the people, and God was doing a great work among them. Nobody had needs because they were all filled with the grace of God, and so they were meeting the functional needs uh, or, or the needs of one another in a functional way. Great grace was upon them all. But then you remember kind of the first account of somebody within the life of the church moving away from the grace of God and moving to some level of achievement. There's something out there that they can earn, something that they can merit, something that they can grasp onto. And uh, Ananias and Sapphira end up trying to look a little bit better than what they actually were, spiritually speaking, and they immediately fall dead in one of the scariest scenes in all of the Bible. And so at that point, great fear came upon all the church. They realized that the grace of God at work in the life of a community is something that certainly God takes seriously. 
And then many signs and wonders were done in verses uh, 12 through 16, and the people were, were beginning to gather to the apostles uh, as, as the, the grace of God was actually being um, kind of unleashed into every aspect of, of the brokenness of society. And the people were, were coming to the disciples by the droves, really. And so we get back to a story that we have kind of heard before where great grace is upon the church, the church begins to grow, the gospel is flourishing, uh, the, the dead things are becoming alive, sin is being undone. As Quentin said, like the sad things are becoming untrue, and you see some persecution rise up. And so last week, I, I kind of asked the question of what, what keeps us from embracing the hilarious goodness of the gospel? Uh, you had a bunch of healings, and, and if you remember the, the account, Peter, pe- people were, were coming out to the streets and kind of laying on cots just so that Peter's shadow would fall on people and they would be healed. And, and people, if, if you remember the lame man from, from chapter 4 and before, uh, you have the account of this lame man who was leaping and praising God and, and kind of breaking the rules and uh, causing a scene, all because, man, he received healing. So what kind of things keep us from embracing the hilarious goodness of the gospel? Well, tonight I want to shift it a little bit. And I know this is a very strange question, but I want to kind of introduce a, a question in our own mind as we discuss this text. What keeps us from suffering for the gospel? And I, I know you're probably like, what doesn't keep us from suffering for the gospel? I don't want to do that. And I want to put a little seed in your mind. Uh, we'll mention this text often, but if you go, go to the end of our reading tonight uh, in, in verse 41, you realize that the apostles found it an honor and they rejoiced in the fact that they too were allowed to suffer for the name of Jesus. And you're like, well, why, again, why, why would I want to do that? And I think it's important for us to to answer that question. But I'm going to go ahead and introduce it as we begin to think through this text. What keeps us from suffering for the gospel? I'm going to show you a slide. And uh, those of you familiar with uh, Good Shepherd Bible Church and some of the meetings we have over the summer, you're, you're, going, to, you're going to recognize uh, at least the top three little circles. Does anybody know what the top three circles are? Like the whole collection of the top three circles. Anybody know what we what we call those in in our in our church body? You don't you don't have to know. It's okay. It was a long time ago. So, do these circles look familiar? All right. The top three circles collectively represent our core values. What we value here as a as a church. So, if somebody was to come to you and say, "What do you value?" Uh, what do you value? We could say, well, we value three major things. Uh, These are things we're committed to. We're committed to the gospel. We're going to champion the message of Jesus coming, living the life we could could never live, dying the death we were supposed to die, and that Jesus freely and unconditionally brings us to God. We're going to celebrate that. We're going to champion that. We're going to value that. And because we value the gospel, the good news of Jesus, we value community. 
we actually think that God's not just calling me into the realities of the gospel. He's calling us into the realities of the gospel, and that shapes the way we live our life, and that that actually leads us into uh, the third thing, that our Christian community, our gospel-centered community, spills over and not just talks about us, but as we begin to relate to people who don't believe the gospel, that it actually like spills over into their life as well. And so the goodness that God has given us should be expressed or overflowing into the life of those who have never heard of the goodness or who haven't experienced the goodness of Jesus. And so we live our life on mission in a variety of different ways, Uh, whether it's just simply helping somebody change a flat tire can be done uh, with a heart that's actually championing the gospel and pursuing community, but also certainly speaking the gospel to one another, helping somebody with uh, a, with guilt and shame or an aspect of, of deep brokenness within their own life and existence. Well, the gospel has something very clear to say about the bad news of this life. But I've kind of been, uh, I, I've kind of been drawing with some invisible ink, if you will. Because here's a value that we could argue from Scripture is there within the life of the New Testament church in the book of Acts. A value that we could champion but it's kind of hidden. It's there. We don't like to talk about it because who does? But if you were to wave the magic marker over the New Testament, you would see this fourth value that if we are going to live this way, if we're going to champion the free gift of God in Jesus as our gospel, the good news in light of the bad news, if we're going to champion that in a community setting together, and then if we're going to live on mission in this world in the face of what we believe to be untruth, or bad news, or the the rival bad news to our glorious good news, well then inevitably, the Christian church is going to experience persecution. It's going to happen. There are people who are going to rise up against the good news and actually call it bad news. And we know this because this the, the very gospel that we champion is this story told out. Jesus was falsely accused. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus was tried and murdered out of a sense of persecution. In in an ironic way, it was our salvation. It is our salvation. It worked. It still fulfilled the plan of God. But yet, it was no less a sort of persecution, not even a sort of, a, a desperately real persecution, absolutely real persecution. And so within the life of the church, what we begin to see is that the, the championing of the gospel and life on mission will reflect itself in persecution. And just as it was God's designed plan for Christ to be persecuted for our sake, so it is that the church of Jesus Christ will be persecuted for others' sake. In other words, how the mission goes on in this world is actually through the mechanism or through the means of persecution. How the church grows, how the church, uh, how the church is able to double down in the life and resurrection of Jesus is in the face of persecution. Again, it's kind of like as if, if you read your Bible and, and it's you kind of like, like a, have a magic marker and you start to apply the magic marker to, to the passages of Scripture that we know and love, what you'll see is in the backdrop, these realities are impressed on us 
through the means of persecution. It's stunning to see. And you say, well, like, well, what, like, how do you know? Where do you see it? Well, there's, it's, it's all over. I'm just going to list just a couple. Um, but this is, these are deep realities related to our own persecution that either is here or is hidden amongst us or is coming. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, who would reflect the gospel, re- reflect the gospel in community and on mission, indeed, all who desire to live that godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter 4, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We'll talk about that. But it goes a little further, maybe. Matthew 5, this is from the Beatitudes. These are Jesus' words. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Romans 8, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, talks about the spirit that indwells all of us, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And that's, that's something to be championed, right? We are adopted ch- children of God. Verse 17, well, if children, then we're heirs. We get to inherit all that Jesus has inherited. And if heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided, here's the one provision, here's the one asterisk, you will suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. We get to share in all that Jesus shared in and because of that, we will share in his persecution as well. So if these realities are true, if this is part of gospel living, and if there is blessedness, and if there is in some level some rejoicing, some happiness in some way, and in somehow, my question is, is actually a good question. What keeps us from suffering for the gospel? Because here, here's the reality. We don't just share in Jesus' experience. Let me, let me say it this way. It's not merely that just because Jesus went to the cross that you will experience some bad things in your life. That, that's true. But that's, that's, not, that's not kind of even the ultimate um, yay aspect of suffering. In fact, that doesn't even seem very yay-y at all. That doesn't get, that doesn't get you very excited. But what might get you excited in relation to his suffering, is that we share, in light of suffering or or in persecution, the reality is we share in the spirit of Jesus. The same spirit that Jesus had in, in, in good news, in an unconditional love, in movement towards people that didn't want him, in, in, in the spirit of salvation, that same spirit indwells us as we face persecution. Do you, do you see that? It's not, it's, I mean, it's not great to just say like, hey, if you want to be, be all in with Jesus, just know, and it's going to be awesome, you're going to die too. That's like, I mean, that's, that doesn't get me fired up. I don't know anybody that's like, yeah, great. I'm supposed to be fired up about that, but I'm really actually kind of scared. Uh, that's, that's real. But what if I told you that the same spirit that motivated Jesus to come to this earth, be rejected by the Father, 
to, to allow sinners, uh, to, to have more brothers and sisters, to share his inheritance, the, the goodness of God that kind of took his heart and kind of divided up amongst all the, all the people who rejected him. That, that good news, that motivation, that love of God is the same spirit that will motivate us as we too are persecuted. Now that, that is something that I would sign up for. Why? Because this world knows nothing of, of that spirit. This, this world knows nothing of unconditional love. This, this world knows very, very little about a true idea of sharing. This world knows very little about, you know what, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm fine. I can get to the back of the line. I want you to go to the front of the line. No strings attached. It's okay. But you know, God in the face of Jesus, in the spirit of Jesus, that's, that's the whole thing. Love, it, love abounds out of the Father. And so that same spirit is the same spirit in us as we are persecuted. And so for me, I mean, I, I, I agree with the Beatles, man. Like, all you need is love. I, I fully, I buy into that hardcore. And our, and our scriptures give us that as well. Love, love's the thing. And if love is the thing, and if, if in the gospel is the only place I can truly get the, the unconditional love of God, then sign me up. If persecution is the only place I, I truly kind of experience that, or the mechanism by which that's at work in this world, fine, sign me up. Sign me up for that. Of course, I say that, and I live in a fairly clean American evangelical Christian experience. So ask me about that in maybe a couple of years. Or ask me about that when God calls me somewhere else where there is a heavy dose of persecution. But I'd like to say that the same spirit at work in Jesus would be a palpable, I, th- I think th- that's something that the, the New Testament church was realizing. Man, this is, this is better than earthly life. This eternal life is way better than earthly life. And so I can risk earthly life to shoot for the realities of the heavenly life right here and now. I can, I can do that. Being worthy to suffer like Jesus means that you are worthy of every blessing of the Spirit. Adoption, cleanness, security, God's presence, the whole kit and caboodle. To, 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 be, to be called into that kind of suffering is to be granted worthy to experience life as an adopted child of God. That's beautiful. You, you, to, to go through persecution is to be granted worthy of being clean. It's to be counted worthy of having eternal security. If, it's to be counted worthy of to live life with God here and now. Oh, that's, 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 that's rare air there. That's rare air. And it all, it all hinges. We, we've talked about this so much, this, this idea in these, these early chapters of the book of Acts, this promise that power gives you, right? This pursuit of power, it, it promises us so much. If you can just go out and achieve whatever it is, fill in the blank you want to achieve, whether it's control, right? Yet you, there's something in your life you can manage your own life, that, that power, it, it's something you can achieve. And it comes out in weird ways like uh, if you can just control your career or if you can just monitor your own wealth structure or if you can just 
uh, achieve this level of parenting where you can kind of live your life through your kids or maybe the affirmation or value that you're longing for is seen in your kids. And so if you can just exert your energy and your life through your kids, then you can achieve something great. Or maybe your own like moral superiority. Like you have all these, these rules and, and laws in your minds and you're constantly thinking about them and then you find ways throughout your entire life to legislate other people in, in their morality. It's, it's, this, it's this kind of achievement. It's like you, you don't have it, but you're going after it. And you're going after it because you need it. This promise of power. That's one way to live life. But here in the early Christian church, we see a a unique way of living, a different way of living. It's living in the power of God's promise. Living in the power of promise, which means it's a a reality that whether or not you feel it, whether or not you're able to lay hold of it, whether or not it's actually tangible, you're believing it's true. It's, it's, it's actually the, the power that this is what God says, not what, not what I say. And ultimately, we, we see this in if, if, the, if the promise of power is something that we achieve, right? We go after. The power promises you so much, but you just got to get it. You just got to lay, lay hold of it. The promise of, uh, the power of promise is something that we simply receive. God, God puts it in our hands and says, this is enough. This is enough. This is okay. This, this will sustain you. This will hold you. And there's power here. Then we're, we're in a totally different posture. We come empty-handed. We come filled. We say, we say thank you. But it takes the shape of, it takes the shape of going down, right? It, it has that kind, of, that kind of way to it. If we're going to receive the promise of God, if he's going to do the work, then it kind, of, it's kind of feels like a death to us, right? Kind of, kind of feels like, well, I don't, I don't have anything to offer to you. I don't, I don't have anything to go after. I'm not achieving anything. It's not this upward trajectory. It's this downward, this downward mobility. And this is, this is totally what we see. So as we go through this, uh, this passage, and we'll go through it quick. Some of you are like, wow, you're just in the introduction, and there's 42 verses here roundabout. Uh, we'll go through it quickly. But I, what I want to show you through this passage well, number one, I'll show you two things. Number one, anti-gospel living looks like dying. It literally, it literally as, as you walk through this, this passage here, you find people who are opposed to living life, embracing the realities or the promises or the receptivity of the gospel. You have people who are opposing the message of the gospel. Free grace. Totally, totally denying it. And it looks, it literally looks like these people are dying. It's like this, it's like their, their hearts are beating, they're breathing, but like you can see this world unhinging for them. They are getting emotionally and spiritually and perhaps even physically unhinged. So what? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Look, look in the first, look in the, uh, look in the first little bit. Those who were seeking power, those who were living life by, by what they could achieve, yet they, they, they don't have it yet. They don't have it, but they're going after it, whether it's religious power. Remember the Sadducees were, were obsessed with this kind of religious power or this status 
this control over their life. If they could just legislate their own morality, they could, they could get it. Well, you'll find out, number one, that they were extremely jealous. Verse 17, high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles. They were going after something that they felt like they couldn't have. And you know who did have it? And they were mad about it? Those measly little apostles. Those little, those little boogers. Those, those, the riffraff. Those guys. The guys that we, ah, They have it. And filled with jealousy, they arrested them. The apostles had undeniable power. Undeniable power. I mean, they, they were literally healing people. What's more powerful than that? And if you think, like, these people have power to heal, shoot, maybe they have power to unheal us. Maybe they have power to destroy. I mean, that's, that's some serious power. And you can, you can kind of see the religious people at work, like, oh, man, all we have are rules. I don't, man. Trust me, I, I have kids. Rules do not work. They do work sometimes, but they don't, they don't really work, okay? You can't just legislate your kids to, it doesn't work like that. It just doesn't, try it. Just, just try it. Next time you're in a classroom full of kids or just walk out in the hallway and just start legislating things, just let me know how that goes, right? Rules, rules can tell you what's right or wrong, but they, they, don't, they don't give you the unction to do it. I, they, can't, they don't make your kids want to do it. It's not going to happen. All the religious had were, were these rules. And they, they were, there was something undeniable about a lame man leaping and praising God in, in the temple square. Undeniable about it. They may not have liked it, may have broken some of their rules, but it's undeniable. And verse 13 in our, in our previous uh, text, in chapter 5, verse 13, the people held them in high esteem, the apostles. The people actually liked them. <laughs> That'll, that'll do it to you. That'll fill you with jealousy. They tried to get the people, hey, come check out what we're doing. Come check out, aren't we awesome? Aren't we awesome? And they're like, no, the apostles, they're awesome. They have power. Secondly, they were insecure. They were insecure. Look at verse 24. When the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them wondering what this would come to. And you see this in, in verses 33 through 39 as well. Um, <laughs> when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. A Pharisee named Gamaliel ends up kind of offering them two different scenarios, right? Either, either this will be just kind of go away, or who knows? You guys that might actually be wrong here. And they're like, oh yeah, that's a good point. We actually might be wrong. They were totally in, they, they had no security. They had no grounding, no basis that what they were banking all the blue chips on would actually work. So Gamaliel kind of offers this like, well, you know, you just got to be careful here because you might even be op- opposing God. And they're like, oh, that's a good point. We're not quite sure. We'll let this play out. We'll see what happens. We'll give it some time. They were totally insecure. They were perplexed and wondering, oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? They were up against a, a rival power, and yet they had no idea how powerful this rival power truly was. They knew they were up against something, but they just had no idea how powerful it was. So they were going to allow things to play out, right? We don't want to get caught in the wrong scenario, so we'll just, we'll see. They even have the recognition 
that the claim of the resurrection of Jesus could be damaging to their entire system. Gamaliel points this out. This, this could actually be a work of God. And if it is, we're in trouble. And they're like, good point, good point. They realize that the claim of Jesus' resurrection could be totally damaging to their entire way. So they were insecure. But for, uh, thirdly, they were, they were hypocritical. They were hypocritical. Uh, in verse 26, you have them arresting people, yet not by force. Why? Well, they don't want to be persecuted, right? They, they don't want to suffer. But then you go to the, the end of this chapter in verse 40, and you have them uh, giving them a strong word. They had called them the, disciples, uh, the apostles, and they beat them and charged them not to speak. So they have, they have no problem inflicting suffering on other people, right? They have no problem exercising their power over other people, but what they don't want is other people's power inflicted on them. I have no problem dishing out suffering. I, I just don't want any on, on me, right? It's, 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 totally, it's totally hypocritical. See, the danger of the promise of power, this, this life by achieving, is it gives no place for the reality of suffering. It gives no place for the reality of suffering. When, when power is something you're pursuing, you have zero theology for suffering. You, you, you can't place it. It doesn't work in your system. You're not allowed to suffer. And so what, what you do to compensate for the suffering that you are experiencing is you actually cause suffering to other people. It, it's, it's actually, it's horrible. And we see this played out in history all over the place, right? It, it, you, can't, you can't lose control. And so how you gain control is you, you gain it by force. You can't, you can't have suffering done to you. And so to get that, to achieve that, you actually have to inflict suffering on other people. This pursuit of power, if you don't have it in your hands, if you don't have this eternal life by your hand, you will not have any context for suffering. But if you have this life in your hand, su- suffering is actually, man, if you really think about it, you might, you might press harder into the realities of your eternal life in the face of suffering more than when you're not suffering. It can actually be a, a weapon of eternal life, a weapon of eternity. And th- we see this, totally hypocritical. I, I'll simply ask, I'll, wh- wh- what is your theology of suffering? Are you allowed to suffer? Are other people around you allowed to suffer? And if not, might you be living after this promise that power offers you? We're not allowed to feel bad. I'm not, again, I'm not telling you, you you need to feel bad. I think we all do a pretty good job of feeling bad all the time. But what I'm saying is there, there is a theology that if you have eternal life, it gives space for your suffering and it gives space for other people's suffering. It allows you actually to enter into it with kindness and gentleness and hope instead of actually feeling better about yourself. And being arrogant, as you sim- see somebody else suffer, you're like, well, at least I'm not like that guy. Right? It allows you to actually love. But thirdly, uh, fourthly, they were defensive. Verse 28, they were defensive. 
saying, we, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Oh man, it's really interesting what, what goes on here. First of all, they're never actually getting around to saying the name of Jesus, which is stunning. They never actually, throughout this whole process, use his name, the name that the apostles are speaking. Remember the idea of the name, the name, the name, the name? Well, they don't actually use the name. They just keep calling it the name, or this man. Stunning, this kind of, this kind of uh, psychologically distancing uh, away from them. They don't, they don't want to be associated with them. But notice they say, you, P- Peter, you're trying to bring that man's blood upon us. Well, that's an interesting turn of phrase. If you go back to Matthew 27, 25, you'll read a, 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 a horrifying, horrifying account when, when Pilate is actually bringing Jesus to the people. Do you remember what the people said? We want this man's blood on our hands. They literally, literally say that. We want this man's blood on our hands and on the hands of our children. They were happy to have their hands drenched in Jesus' blood. They thought they were doing God's work. And now when push comes to shove, we don't, you're trying to put this man's blood upon us. They were, they were totally defensive, which means they were totally blind. They were out for own, their own self-righteousness. They weren't out for the truth. They were willfully blind. And you can see, you can see this scramble. You can see this insecurity and this, this mental and emotional scramble for those who are opposing the gospel. It literally looks like life is just fleeting out of their, their hands. They cannot get a grasp on reality. And yet, contrast that Here's the, here's the other reality. Gospel dying looks like living. This stunning irony. Gospel dying looks like living. And here we get to see the apostles and, uh, and, and the early church suffering. What we see is that God's work is, first of all, unstoppable. It's unstoppable in the face of suffering and persecution. If you look in, in verse 19, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, hey, we, I, I want you to actually, yeah, the, the word, remember the word? I want, I want you to go, go preach and teach that. Keep, keep doing what you're doing. Remember from last week, these signs and these wonders uh, that, are, that, are, that are geared towards the, the proclamation of the gospel. Here we see another sign and wonder, the angel coming in and saying, I, I'm doing this so that you can go teach, you can go preach. Get that, get that good news out. It's unstoppable. You can't, you can't arrest God's work. You can't chain up God's work. It's impossible. God is stronger than prisons. He's stronger than armies. He's stronger than kings. He's stronger than religion. He's stronger than death. And that's the frightening thing for people who are out looking for power. When your enemy is the one who has defeated death. Remember, the angel comes and says, go tell them about this life, this capital L life. I love that description. I love it. Go make sure people know that this life is what it's all about, this resurrection life. But secondly, God's work is securing. It actually gives security to God's people. Uh, Peter says this in verse 30. He's, he's, he's now kind of giving his reply. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed, By hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance and forgiveness. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey. So you killed him, God raised him, and through it we are saved. 
We're going we're gonna to keep ripping it out, man. We're, we're going to keep preaching. We know those three things. We know we are committed to the reality, to the truth. You killed him, but God raised him. And through that amazing irony, we are saved. It gives security for them. And third, it's joy-giving. We see this in verses 41 and 42. We already read it. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. They let him go. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus, or that the Christ is Jesus. And so from this, there's, there's really, there's like literally from this passage, and actually in this passage, you see three responses. I'll go ahead and put them up here. But here, here's the reality, because Gamaliel's going to give two of these responses. Hey, here, men of Israel, here's two ways we, we can respond to this. And turns out, they're both not great. But they are two options for us. There's out and out rejection. This isn't going to work. This isn't of God. You can just let it go. It's going to fizzle out. There's indecision. There's let's just wait and see. Let's pump the brakes. Let's find out. If it is from God, I think we'll need to be careful then. But for right now, we'll just pump the brakes. And certainly the third response is the response of the the apostles. This joy-filled missionality. We're going to keep preaching and teaching. We're going to keep going. And boy, isn't, isn't it a blessing to have the Spirit of Jesus filling our lives in the midst of what looks like death. Oh. So, so my, my question, what, what, is, what keeps you from suffering? And I think he, the clarity in this question is, again, I, I don't, there's no need for us to be obnoxious, right? The gospel is obnoxious enough. And I think we can be more clear on it, certainly, because the gospel is not our political system, Right? It's not our evangelical, mostly white expression of life, right? The gospel is a very clear thing. So we can be clearer, certainly. We don't have to be obnoxious with it. But I guess my reality is, is, what, is, what, is what is causing us, what is preventing us from embracing the realities of the, the spirit life, the resurrection life that God has given us? What, what's keeping us from that? And I, I can name a couple things within, within my own heart. And a lot of it are related to, to these things that I feel like I need to achieve, not name Jesus. There's things out there that I, that I need to achieve. But also, when it comes to, to Jesus himself, I often feel like, well, I simply just don't want to suffer. I simply just don't want to be uncomfortable. I, I, I simply am not, not grasped, grasped by the by the reality that, that my sin, that apart, that apart from God, I, I truly stand on the abyss of an eternal hell. I, 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 have a, I don't think that way. I think I'm mostly pretty good. I think I'm mostly doing just fine. I think there's other things that, that, I, can, that I can live for. I feel like controlling my own life and getting kids, my kids to reflect my glory is, is what I want. I want ease. I want comfortability. There's so many things that I'm, I'm pursuing. I want moral superiority. I just want to be seen as right. These things can often keep us 
from embracing the realities that it's okay to suffer and to know Jesus' eternal life within us. It's okay to be motivated by selflessness. It's okay to be motivated for my, my neighbor to give up time, to give up comfort, to give up possessions. It's a wonderful thing to suffer in that way. And then certainly when people call us names and call us short-sighted or whatever, whatever it is, like that, there's a blessedness there. there. There's an ability to rejoice. I, I'm a saint. The Spirit's indwelling me. It's going to be okay. What, what is causing us? What is keeping us from suffering? Or maybe even what is keeping us from a daily dying for the sake of the gospel? Well, the good news is, and again, it's not that we, we it's, not, it's not merely that we experience the same thing that Jesus experienced. That is true. That is true. But the reality is that his work is substitutionary for us, right? It's, it's, it's for us. It's in our place. So this whole thing, is not dependent on how well you die. It's not dependent on how well you live. It's dependent all on what Jesus has done. That's the freedom we have. That's the freedom we have. And it's a, it's a, it's a, cause, it's a cause to rejoice in, in his promise. I pray that as a church, we would have this space for suffering. Not because it's fantastic, but because through it, we can actually rejoice in the eternal life that God has given us through Jesus. Let's pray. God, for this word, I pray that you would seal it to our hearts, allow us to embrace it through faith. Father, for these parts of our lives that we feel like we're so attached to, for these things in our lives we feel like we constantly have to pursue in order to have eternal life, Father, I pray that we would, uh, that, you, that you would work in our hearts a selflessness, a surrender, an opening of the, of the hands to be able to take what we think is there and to fill it with your gifts, to fill it with the things that you want us to have. And so, Father, if suffering is the way, Father, we gladly accept it, to know Jesus, to know his life through us. Father, I pray for anyone here who is suffering. Uh, I pray that you would allow them to have a context for what you are doing in their midst. That it's not just about them uh, in, 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 you're not angry with them, you're not mad at them, uh, but Father, you are actually working within them, maybe a, a deeper life, a more spiritual life of, of resurrection power. Father, for this meal, I pray that you would bless it for Christ's sake and allow it to minister to us and we pray these things in Christ's name.
salvation.